7. In Search of Native American Ancestors Origins Stories In an origin story of the Shuruwi tribe of Amazonia, the god Palop first made his brother Palop Leregu, and then created humans. Palop gave the Native American tribes hammocks and ornaments, and told them to tattoo their bodies and pierce their lips. But he did not give any of these things to the whites. Palop created languages, one for each group, and scattered the groups across the earth. This origin story was documented by an anthropologist working to understand Shuruwi culture. And, like origin stories the world over, it is viewed by scholars as fictional, of interest because of what it reveals about a society. But we scientists, too, have origin stories. We like to think these are superior because they are tested by the scientific method against a range of evidence. But some humility is in order. In 2012, I led a study that claimed that all Native Americans from Mesoamerica southward, including the Shuruwi, derived all of their ancestry from a single population, one that moved south of the ice sheets sometime after 15,000 years ago. I was so confident of this theory, which fit with the consensus derived from archaeology, that I used the term First American to signal that the lineage we had highlighted was a founding lineage. Three years later, I found out I was wrong. The Shuruwi and some of their neighbors in Amazonia harbor some ancestry from a different founding population of the Americas, whose ancestors arrived at a time and along a route we still do not understand. If there is anything that scholars studying the history of humans in the Americas agree on, it is that the span of human occupation of the New World has been the blink of an eye relative to the extraordinary length of the human occupation of Africa and Eurasia. The reason for humans' late arrival to America lies in the geographical barriers that separate the continent from Eurasia, vast stretches of cold, harsh, and unproductive landscapes in Siberia, and oceans to the east and west. It took until the last ice age for Siberia's northeastern corner to be visited by people with the skills and technology needed to survive there, at a time when sea levels were low enough for a land bridge to emerge in what is now the Bering Strait region enabling them to walk across to Alaska. Once there, the migrants were able to survive, but they still could not have traveled south, at least by land, as they were blocked by a wall of glacial ice formed by the joining together of kilometer-thick ice sheets that buried Canada. How were the Americas first peopled? Until two decades ago, the prevailing hypothesis was that the gates of the American Eden only opened after around 13,000 years ago. Evidence from plant and animal remains and the radiocarbon dating of glacial features indicate that by this time, the ice sheets had melted enough to allow a gap to open, and sufficient time had passed to allow the barren rocks, mud, and glacial runoff to give way to vegetation. In scientific storytelling, this ice-free corridor was an American version of the channel of dry land that the Israelites used to cross the Red Sea in the biblical account of the exodus from Egypt. The migrants who passed through emerged into North America's Great Plains. Before them was a land filled with massive game that had never before met human hunters. Within a thousand years, the humans had reached Tierra del Fuego, 
at the foot of South America, feasting on the bison, mammoths, and mastodons that roamed the landscape. The notion that humans first reached an empty America from Asia, an idea that today is still the overwhelming consensus among scholars, dates back to the Jesuit naturalist José de Acosta in 1590, who, finding it unlikely that ancient peoples could have navigated across a great ocean, conjectured that the New World was joined to the old in the then unmapped Arctic. This idea gained plausibility when the narrowness of the Bering Strait was discovered by the circumnavigation of Captain Cook. Scientific evidence for humans in temperate America at the tail end of the last ice age came in the 1920s and 1930s, when archaeologists working at the sites of Folsom and Clovis, New Mexico, discovered artifacts and stone tools, including spear tips mixed in among the bones of extinct mammoths that were effectively smoking guns proving a human presence. Clovis-style spear tips have since been found over hundreds of sites across North America, sometimes embedded in bison and mammoth skeletons. Their similar style over vast distances, contrasting with the regional variation in stone tool-making styles of the cultures that followed, is what one might expect for an expansion that occurred fast, as the people were moving into a human vacuum. The available evidence suggests that the Clovis culture appeared in the archaeological record around the time of the geologically attested opening of the ice-free corridor. So everything seemed to fit. It seemed natural to think that people practicing the Clovis culture were the first humans south of the ice sheets, and were also the ancestors of all of today's Native Americans. This Clovis first model, in which the makers of the Clovis culture emerged from the ice-free corridor, and proceeded to people an empty continent, became the standard model of American prehistory. It fostered skepticism among archaeologists regarding claims of pre-Clovis sites. It influenced linguists, who claimed to find a common origin for a large number of diverse Native American languages. The mitochondrial DNA data available at the time was also consistent with the great majority of the ancestry of present-day Native Americans, deriving from a radiation from a single source. Although, with such data alone, it was not possible to determine whether that radiation occurred at the time of Clovis or before. A major blow to the idea that Clovis groups were the first Americans came in 1997. That year marked the publication of the results of excavations at the site of Monteverde in Chile, which contains butchered mastodon bones, wooden remains of structures, knotted string, ancient hearths, and stone tools with no stylistic similarities to the Clovis remains from North America. The radiocarbon dates of Monteverde indicated that some of the artifacts there, dated to around 14,000 years ago, definitively before the ice-free corridor had opened thousands of kilometers to the north. A group of skeptical archaeologists, who had previously shot down many pre-Clovis claims, visited the site that same year. And though they arrived doubting that the site could be that old, they left convinced. Their acceptance of Monteverde was followed by the acceptance of finds elsewhere that also pointed to a pre-ice-free corridor and a pre-Clovis human presence in the Americas. Nearly as strong a case for a pre-ice-free corridor occupation has been made at the Paisley Caves in Oregon, in the northwestern United States, where ancient feces in undisturbed soil layers have also been dated to around 14,000 years ago, 
and have yielded human mitochondrial DNA sequences. How could humans have gotten south of the ice sheets before the ice-free corridor was open? During the peak of the Ice Age, glaciers projected right into the sea, creating a barrier more than a thousand kilometers in length along the western seaboard of Canada. But in the 1990s, geologists and archaeologists, reconstructing the timing of the ice retreat, realized that portions of the coast were ice-free after 16,000 years ago. There are no known archaeological sites along the coast from this period, as sea levels have risen more than a hundred meters since the Ice Age, submerging any archaeological sites that might have once hugged the shoreline. The absence of archaeological evidence for human occupation along the coast in this period is therefore not evidence that there was no such occupation in the past. If the coastal route hypothesis is right, humans could have walked at that time or later, but still in time to reach Monteverde, along ice-free stretches of the coastline, possibly bypassing ice-covered sections with boats or rafts, and arriving south of the ice millennia before the interior ice-free corridor opened. Ancient DNA studies have also now made it clear just how wrong the Clovis first idea is, how it misses a whole deep branch of Native American population history. In 2014, Eska Vilislev and his colleagues published whole genome data from the remains of an infant excavated in Montana, whose archaeological context assigned him to the Clovis culture, and whose radiocarbon age was a bit after 13,000 years ago. Their analysis showed that this infant was definitively from the same ancestral population as many Native Americans. But his genetic data also showed that, by the time he lived, a deep split among Native American populations had already developed. The remains from the Clovis infant were on one side of that split, the side that contributed the lion's share of ancestry to all Native American populations in Mesoamerica and South America today. The other side of the split includes Native American peoples, who today live in eastern and central Canada. The only way this could have happened is if there had been a population that lived before Clovis and that gave rise to major Native American lineages. Mistrust of Western Science Ancient DNA studies, such as the one of the Clovis infant, have the potential to resolve controversies about Native American population history. But such studies have resonances for present-day descendants of those populations that are not entirely positive. That is because the last 500 years have witnessed repeated cases in which people of European ancestry have exploited the indigenous peoples of the Americas, using the toolkit of Western science. This has engendered distrust between some Native American groups and the scholarly community, a distrust that makes carrying out genetic studies challenging. After the arrival of Europeans in the Americas in 1492, Native American populations and cultures collapsed under the pressure of European diseases, military campaigns, and an economic and political regime set on exploiting the riches of the continent and converting its inhabitants to Christianity. History is written by the victors, and the rewriting of the past after the European conquests has been particularly complete in the Americas, as there was no written language except in Mesoamerica prior to the arrival of Europeans. In Mexico, the Spanish burned indigenous books, 
and so most Native American writing literally went up in flames. The oral tradition suffered too. Language change, religious conversion, and discrimination against indigenous ways led Native American culture to be relegated to a lower status than European culture. Modern genomics offers an unexpected way to recover the past. African Americans, another population that has had its history stolen as its ancestors descend from people kidnapped into slavery from Africa, are at the forefront of trying to use genetics to trace roots. But if individual Native Americans often express a great interest in their genetic history, tribal councils have sometimes been hostile. A common concern is that genetic studies of Native American history are yet another example of Europeans trying to enlighten them. Past attempts to do so, for example by conversion to Christianity or education in Western culture, have led to the dissolution of Native American culture. There is also an awareness that some scientists have studied Native Americans to learn about questions of interest primarily to non-Native Americans, without paying attention to the interests of Native Americans themselves. One of the first strong responses to genetic studies of Native Americans came from the Caratiana of Amazonia. In 1996, physicians collected blood from the Caratiana, promising participants improved access to health care, which never came. Distressed by this experience, the Caratiana were at the forefront of objections to the inclusion of their samples in an international study of human genetic diversity, the Human Genome Diversity Project and were instrumental in preventing that entire project from being funded. Ironically, DNA samples from the Caratiana have been used more than those of any other single Native American population in subsequent studies that have analyzed how Native Americans are related to other groups. The Caratiana DNA samples that have been widely studied are not from the disputed set from 1996. Instead, they are from a collection carried out in 1987 in which participants were informed about the goals of the study and told that their involvement was voluntary. However, the Caratiana people's later experience of exploitation has put a cloud over DNA studies in this population. Another strong response to genetic research on Native Americans came from the Havasupai, who live in the canyonlands of the U.S. Southwest. Blood from the Havasupai was sampled in 1889 by researchers at Arizona State University who were trying to understand the tribe's high risk for type 2 diabetes. The participants gave written consent to participate in a study of the causes of behavioral medical disorders, and the language of the consent forms gave the researchers latitude to take a very broad view of what the consent meant. The researchers then shared the samples with many other scientists, who used them to study topics ranging from schizophrenia to the Havasupai's prehistory. Representatives of the Havasupai argued that the samples were being used for a purpose different from the one to which its members understood they had agreed. That is, even if the fine print of the form said one thing, it was clear to them when the samples were collected that the study was supposed to focus on diabetes. This dispute led to a lawsuit, the return of the samples, and an agreement by the university to pay $700,000 in compensation. The hostility to genetic research has even entered into tribal law. In 2002, the Navajo, who along with many other Native American tribes are by treaty partly politically independent of the United States, 
passed a moratorium on genetic research, forbidding participation of Navajo tribal members in genetic studies, whether of disease risk factors or population history. A summary of this moratorium can be found in a document prepared by the Navajo Nation, outlining points for university researchers to take into account when considering a research project. The document reads, Human genome testing is strictly prohibited by the tribe. Navajos were created by changing women. Therefore, they know where they came from. I became aware of the Navajo moratorium in 2012, while I was in the final stages of preparing a manuscript on genetic variation among diverse Native Americans. After receiving favorable reviews of our manuscript, I asked each researcher who contributed samples to double-check whether the informed consent associated with the samples was consistent with studies of population history, and to confirm that they themselves stood behind the inclusion of their samples in our study. This led to withdrawal of three populations from the study, including the Navajo. All three populations were from the United States, reflecting the anxiety that has seized U.S. genetic researchers about genetic studies of Native Americans. At a workshop on genetic studies of Native Americans that I attended in 2013, multiple researchers stood up from the audience to say that the responses of the Karitiana, Havasupai, Navajo, and others had made them too wary to do any research on Native Americans, including disease research. Scientists interested in studying genetic variation in Native American populations feel frustrated with this situation. I understand something of the devastation that the coming of Europeans and Africans to the Americas wrought on Native American populations, and its effects are also evident everywhere in the data I and my colleagues analyze. But I am not aware of any cases in which research in molecular biology, including genetics, a field that has arisen almost entirely since the end of the Second World War, has caused major harm to historically persecuted groups. Of course, there have been well-documented cases of the use of biological material in ways that may not have been appreciated by the people from whom it was taken, not just in Native Americans. For example, the cervical cancer tumor cells of Henrietta Lacks, an African-American woman from Baltimore, were distributed after her death, without her consent and without the knowledge of her family, to thousands of laboratories around the world, where they have become a mainstay of cancer research. But overall, there is an argument to be made that modern studies of DNA variation, not just in Native Americans, but also in many other groups, including the San of Southern Africa, Jews, the Roma of Europe, and tribal or caste groups from South Asia, are a force for good, contributing to the understanding and treatment of disease in these populations, and breaking down fixed ideas of race that have been used to justify discrimination. I wonder if the distrust that has emerged among some Native Americans might be, in the balance, doing Native Americans substantial harm. I wonder whether, as a geneticist, I have a responsibility to do more than just respect the wishes of those who do not wish to participate in genetic research, but instead should make a respectful but strong case for the value of such research. The withdrawal of Namaho samples from our study was distressing since they were among those with the very best documentation of informed consent. The researcher who shared the samples with us had collected them personally in 1993 as part of a DNA day that he had organized at Diné College on Navajo lands. 
so there was no ambiguity involved in the handoff of samples along a human chain. During the workshop, he asked participants if they wished to donate their samples for the explicit purpose of broad studies of population history, specifically for studies that give prominence to the idea that all peoples of the world are closely related and emphasize the unity of human origins. And members of the Navajo tribe who wished to participate signed a form indicating that they did. Yet these individuals' personal decisions to participate in the study were overruled by the Tribal Council's moratorium nine years later. Should we have respected the wishes of the college students who donated the samples, or the later decision of the Tribal Council? In the instance, we avoided the issue, acceding to the request of the researcher, who was so concerned that he asked us not to include the samples in the study. I was never comfortable with this decision. I felt that including the samples would best respect the wishes of the individuals who chose to donate their DNA for studies of their history. But I recognize that different cultures have different perspectives. There is a movement among some Native American ethicists and community leaders to argue that any research that has as its subject a tribe should only be considered acceptable if there is community consultation, not just informed individual consent. These concerns prompted some international studies of human genetic variation to carry out community consultation, in addition to individual informed consent, before including samples. The very few researchers studying Native American genetic diversity almost all now consult with tribal authorities to obtain feedback on study design, and sometimes to obtain explicit community consent, even if doing so is not legally required. There is a general issue here about the ethical responsibilities of genetic research. When I examine an individual's genome, I learn not only about the genome of the individual, but also about those of his or her family and ancestors. I also learn about other members of the community, other descendants of those same ancestors. What are my responsibilities here? What do I owe not only to close relatives of the individual I study, but also to other more distantly related members of their family, to their population, and to our species as a whole? An extreme position that everyone needs to be consulted would make scientific progress in human genetics, including genetic medicine, nearly impossible. There would not be enough time for scientists in modest-sized laboratories like mine to talk with every tribal group that might be interested in the work. My own perspective is that we need, as a scientific community, to arrive at a middle ground, an approach that does not require obtaining permission from every possible interested group or tribe. On the other hand, given the well-founded concerns of tribal communities in North America, which have developed as a result of a persistent history of exploitation, we scientists should aspire to carry out meaningful outreach when we study Native American population history, to ensure that any manuscripts we write are sensitive to indigenous perspectives. The details of how to achieve such consultation need to be worked out, and it seems to me that there will never be a solution that everyone will find comfortable. But we need to try to make progress beyond the situation we are facing right now, in which many researchers are reluctant to undertake any studies of Native American genetic variation for fear of criticism, and because of the extraordinary time commitment that would be required in order to accomplish all the consultations that some 
tribal representatives and scholars have recommended. This has had the effect of putting research into genetic variation among Native Americans into a deep chill, with far less research in this area going on than anyone but the people most hostile to scientific research would like. Disputes over bones Ancient DNA studies of population history are mostly not as fraught as studies of present-day people. However, in 1990, the U.S. Congress passed the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA, which requires institutions that receive U.S. funding to contact Native American tribes and offer to return cultural artifacts, including bones that are from groups to which Native Americans can prove a biological or cultural connection. This has meant that Native American remains are being returned to Native American tribes, and the opportunity to carry out ancient DNA analysis on many of the samples is disappearing. NAGPRA has had its greatest impact on archaeological remains dating to within the last thousand years, for which a relatively strong case can be made for cultural connections with living Native American tribes. The case for cultural connection is harder to make for very old remains, such as the approximately 8,500-year-old Kennewick man, found on U.S. lands in Washington State in 1996. Kennewick Man's skeleton was initially slated for return to five Native American tribes that claimed him as an ancestor, but was made available for scientific study instead, after courts found that there was no good scientific evidence that he was Native American under the rules of NAGPRA. To win their case, the scientists who challenged the tribal claims pointed to analyses of skeletal morphology that suggested that his skeleton was closer to Pacific Rim Asian and Pacific Islander populations than to present-day Native Americans. In 2015, though, Eska Villaslev and his colleagues extracted and studied ancient DNA from Kennewick Man, which showed that these conclusions from the morphological studies were wrong. Kennewick Man is, in fact, derived from the same broad ancestral population as most other Native Americans. Ancient DNA trumps morphological analysis whenever it is possible to compare the two types of data. The reason is simple. Morphological studies of skeletons can only examine a handful of traits that are variable among individuals, and thus can usually support only uncertain population assignment. In contrast, genetic analyses of tens of thousands of independent positions allow exact population assignment. Thus, the characterization of the ancestry of a single sample, like Kennewick Man, based on a small number of morphological traits, cannot convincingly distinguish between Native American and Pacific Rim ancestry. Genetic data can. While the ancient DNA study produced clear proof of the Native American ancestry of Kennewick Man, it was not so clear whether he bears a particularly strong relationship to the Washington State Native American populations that made claims on his remains. The paper reporting that Kennewick Man genome sampled DNA from the Colville tribe, one of the five tribes staking a claim of relationship to him, and argued that the data were consistent with a direct link. However, the Colville was the only tribe from the lower 48 states of the United States that the scientists analyzed, and a close look at the details of the paper provides no compelling case that Kennewick Man is more closely related to the Colville tribe 
than he is to Native Americans as far away as South America. The Colville data are also not available to the scientific community for independent analysis. They were not provided to my group on request despite the fact that the journal in which they were published requires sharing of data as a condition for publication. Wishful interpretation of genetic data is not limited to Kennewick Man. In 2017, a study of an approximately 10,300-year-old skeleton excavated from an island off the Pacific coast of present-day Canada claimed evidence for an unbroken presence of a lineage of Native Americans in the same region from his time until to the present day. But an examination of the analyses presented in the paper showed that this individual, too, was no more closely related to local people than to Native Americans in South America. These are just two examples of how the ancient DNA literature is beginning to fill up with unsubstantiated claims of direct ancestral links between ancient skeletons and groups living today, a problem that is not limited to the Americas. Scientists working with indigenous people have an incentive to make such claims, as claims like this are often welcomed by local groups and open the door to sampling. The normal scientific process, in which scientists point out claims that are not compellingly supported by data, is also not working as it should. A concern is that when members of groups are directly engaged in scientific investigation of their own history, people's wish that certain things should be true often colors presentation of the findings, and scientists not involved in the work are often too anxious about repercussions to point out problems. The Kennewick Man case was contentious and played itself out in court, engendering hostility between academics and Native American tribes. It has had consequences for scientists interested in Native American population history, and it has made such research far more difficult. From my experience interacting with archaeologists, anthropologists, and museum directors who focus on Native American prehistory, it is clear to me that many feel a deep sense of loss about the return of collections of scientifically important bones and wish to keep them in the possession of museums while acknowledging the dubious ways in which many of these collections were assembled in the course of U.S. expropriation of Native American lands. Balanced against this is the sense of loss that many Native Americans feel about having ancestors' remains disturbed. To navigate these competing interests and the law, many museums employ NAGPRA officers, whose job it is to identify cultural and skeletal remains that can be associated with particular Native American tribes and to reach out to representatives of those tribes in order to return the items. But while the NAGPRA officers with whom I have interacted are dedicated to fulfilling the letter of the law and do so professionally, they are also careful to not go beyond it. They feel distressed when, as in the case of Kennewick Man, remains are returned to tribes without the evidence of biological or cultural connection that NAGPRA regulations require. One geneticist who is breaking new ground in this area is Eska Villerslev. Not only with the Kennewick sample, but also with other indigenous skeletal remains from which he has assembled DNA. Villerslev has won the cooperation of indigenous communities in a way that is innovative and brilliant, even if it is not making everyone in the archaeological and museum community happy. He has realized that there can be shared interests between indigenous communities and geneticists because DNA studies can empower tribes to stake claims on remains.
This happened in the case of the genome sequences extracted from an approximately 100-year-old Australian Aboriginal hair sample, the almost 13,000-year-old Clovis skeleton, and the approximately 8,500-year-old Kennewick skeleton. In all three cases, Vilislev approached tribes directly after obtaining DNA, instead of engaging them through an institutionally run process, such as the ones that have been set up through NAGPRA. Although many in the archaeological community have been concerned about Vilislev's approach of engaging tribes outside the formal institutional process, he has been successful in several ways. In Australia, his engagement with Aboriginal groups in the context of his work on the hundred-year-old hair sample generated goodwill and opened the door to a much more ambitious study of present-day Aboriginal populations published in 2016 by him and colleagues. Similarly, in the United States, Willerslav's engagement with indigenous groups in the Clovis and Kennewick cases has helped generate goodwill and encourage tribes to support ancient DNA analysis of other remains. A remarkable example of this progress is provided by remains found in Spirit Cave in Utah. In 2000, the U.S. Bureau of Land Management decided against returning these almost 11,000-year-old remains to the Fallon Paiute Shoshone tribe that requested them. The Bureau's basis for the decision was that there was no evidence of biological or cultural connection to that tribe. The tribe then sued, putting the remains into a legal limbo that allowed them to be investigated only for the purpose of studying their ancestry, to determine whether they indeed might have a biological connection to the Fallon Paiute Shoshone. In October 2015, after publication of the Kennewick paper, Vilerslev was given access to the remains for ancient DNA analysis, and around a year later he delivered to the Bureau a technical report showing that the individual had ancestry that was entirely from the same deep lineage as present-day Native Americans. On the basis of this report, the Bureau decided to return the bones to the tribe. This decision confused the NAGPRA officer I corresponded with about it who noted that the interpretation was beyond the letter of the NAGPRA law, which required documentation of a connection to the Fallon Paiute Shoshone, more than to other groups, which Vilislev had apparently not demonstrated. But when I talked with Vilislev about returning samples to tribes, his view was that the letter of the NAGPRA law was not so important, and that the community standard was changing, even if the law had not yet caught up. In an article in the scientific journal Nature about the decision to return the spirit cave remains, the anthropologist Dennis O'Rourke was quoted as saying that the case set an example for how Native American groups could be engaged in using genetics to determine which remains to study and rebury. The anthropologist Kim Tallbear pointed out how the spirit cave example showed that the relationship between tribes and scientists need not be antagonistic. Tribes do not like having a scientific worldview politically shoved down their throat, but there is interest in the science. Villerslev's realization that ancient DNA data provide a type of evidence that can be used to establish claims on unaffiliated remains held in museum collections offers an unexpected opportunity to begin to break the logjam of poor relations that is built up between scholars and indigenous communities. There is also a second great area of unrealized common cause between Native Americans and geneticists, the potential to use ancient DNA to measure the sizes of populations that existed 
prior to 1492 by looking at variation within the genome of ancient samples. This is a critical issue for Native Americans, as there is evidence for about a tenfold collapse in population size in the Americas following the arrival of Europeans and the waves of epidemic disease that Europeans brought, leading to the dissolution of previously established complex societies. The relatively small population sizes that European colonialists encountered when they arrived in the Americas were used to provide moral justification for the annexation of Native American lands. The European colonialists had an interest in minimizing the estimates of Native American population sizes, of claiming that there were few, if any, civilizations or sophisticated populations in the Americas before Europeans came. I hope that as the consequences of the genome revolution are more broadly realized, indigenous people will increasingly recognize how DNA can become a tool to connect present-day Native American people to their roots and to each other. This will not solve all the concerns that Native American ethicists and community leaders have articulated, but it may serve to reduce antagonism and promote greater understanding and even collaboration in the future. The Genetic Evidence of the First Americans The first genome-scale study of Native American population history came in 2012, when my laboratory published data on 52 diverse populations. A major limitation of the study was that we had no samples at all from the lower 48 states of the United States because of anxieties about genetic research on Native Americans. Nevertheless, the study sampled Native American diversity in much of the rest of the hemisphere and provided new insights about the past. Most of the individuals we studied derived small fractions of their genomes from African or European ancestors in the last 500 years, reflecting the profound upheavals that have occurred since the arrival of European colonists. We carried out many analyses on individuals with no evidence of such mixture. But for some populations, especially in Canada, all the individuals we sampled had at least some non-Native American ancestry. Because we wanted to include these populations, we used a technique that allowed us to identify which sections of people's genomes were of European or African origin. We did this by searching for extended genomic stretches, in which individuals carried genetic variants at high frequency in Africans and Europeans, but at low frequency in Native Americans. Masking out these sections of the genome helped us to peel back the history of 500 years of admixture in the Americas to understand something about what the structure of Native American population relationships was like before European contact. We compared all possible pairs of Native American populations using the four-population test. We used this test to evaluate whether Eurasian populations for instance, Han Chinese, shared more genetic mutations with one Native American population or another, testing all possible pairs of populations. For 47 of the 52 populations, we could not detect differences in their relatedness to Asians. This suggested to us that the vast majority of Native Americans today, including all those from Mexico southward, as well as populations from eastern Canada, descend from a single common lineage. Five remaining populations, all from the Arctic or from the Pacific Northwest coast of Alaska and Canada, 
also had evidence of ancestry from different lineages. Thus, the extraordinary physical differences among Native American groups today are due to evolution, since splitting from a common ancestral population, not to immigration from different sources in Eurasia. We call this common ancestral population the First Americans. We hypothesized that the first American lineage that we had characterized represented the descendants of the first people to spread south of the ice sheets, whether via an ice-free corridor or along a coastal route. Genomic studies so far have not been able to determine how small this group was or how many generations it wandered, but whatever happened, we were arguing that this was a pioneer population of limited size that moved into a human vacuum expanding dramatically wherever it arrived. The genetic data provides support for the correctness of this hypothesis in its broad outlines. As we applied the four-population test time and again, it became clear to us that the great majority of Native Americans, from populations in northern North America down to southern South America, can be broadly described as branches of one tree, forming a sharp contrast to patterns of population relationships in Eurasia. Most populations branched cleanly off the central trunk, with little subsequent mixture. The splits proceeded roughly in a north-to-south direction, consistent with the idea that as populations traveled south, groups peeled off and settled, remaining in approximately the same place ever since. The most striking exception to this pattern was the less than 13,000-year-old infant associated with the Clovis culture, who was found in Montana very close to the present-day Canadian border. The Clovis infant came from a lineage different from that of present-day inhabitants of neighboring Canada, reflecting major population movements that must have happened later. In some places in the Americas, ancient DNA confirms the theory that populations have remained in the same region for thousands of years. According to analyses we and Lars Fieren Schmitz have done of Peruvians dating up to 9,000 years ago, there has been a broad continuity in Native American populations in this region. All the ancient genomes from Peru that we have studied are more closely related to each other and to present-day Native Americans from Peru who speak the Quechua and Aymara languages than they are to any other present-day South American populations. We have similar findings from Native American individuals from southern Argentina, dating to around 8,000 years ago and Native American individuals from southern Brazil, dating to around 10,000 years ago. The same applies to Native Americans from the islands off of British Columbia, who appear to have been part of a continuous population for around 6,000 years, even if the local continuity does not clearly go back more than 10,000 years. All are more closely related to Native Americans who live in the same regions today than to Native Americans far away. The Genomic Rehabilitation of Joseph Greenberg The genetic discovery of the spread of the first Americans also helps to resolve a linguistic controversy. The extraordinary diversity of Native American languages had been noted as early as the 17th century, with some European missionaries attributing it to the devil's efforts to resist the conversion of Native populations by making the language that missionaries needed to learn to proselytize to one population useless for proselytizing to the next. Linguistics can be divided into splitters, who emphasize differences among languages, and lumpers, 
who emphasized their common roots. One of the most extreme splitters was Lyle Campbell, who divided about 1,000 Native American languages into about 200 families, groups of related languages, sometimes even localized to particular river valleys. One of the most extreme lumpers was Joseph Greenberg, who argued that he could group all Native American languages into just three families, the deep connections of which he could trace. He argued that these three families reflected three great waves of migration from Asia. Campbell and Greenberg clashed famously in their interpretation of Native American language relationships, with Campbell finding Greenberg's tripartite classification so objectionable that he wrote in 1986 that Greenberg's classification should be shouted down. In fact, two of the language families are indisputable. Eskimo Aleut languages spoken by many of the indigenous peoples of Siberia, Alaska, northern Canada, and Greenland, and Nadini languages spoken by a subset of the Native American tribes living on the Pacific coast of northern North America, in the interior of northern Canada, and in the southwestern United States. But it was Greenberg's third family, Amerind, which he claimed includes about 90% of the languages of Native Americans that so many linguists found objectionable. The method that Greenberg used to propose Amerind was to study several hundred words across different Native American languages and to score them according to the extent to which they were shared. By finding high rates of sharing, he claimed evidence for common origin. As he sought, Proto-Amerind was spoken by the first Americans south of the ice sheets. Because he found that every non-Nadini and non-Eskimo Aleut language throughout the Americas could be classified as Amerind using this approach, he concluded that the language data supported a theory of three great waves of Native American dispersal from Asia. If there had been another wave, it would have left another distinct set of languages. The critique of Greenberg's ideas that followed was withering. Critics argued that the list of words was too brief to establish commonality. Critics also disputed the claim that these words truly stemmed from common roots. Identification of shared words is thought to become difficult for time depths of more than a few thousand years, because languages change so fast. But Greenberg was claiming to detect links at twice this time depth. But Greenberg got something right. His category of Amerind corresponds almost exactly to the first American category found by genetics. The clusters of populations that he predicted to be most closely related based on language were, in fact, verified by the genetic patterns in populations for which data are available. And the present-day balkanization of Native American languages also reflects a history in which the great majority of populations descend from a single migratory spread. Anyone looking at a language map of the Americas can see that its appearance is qualitatively different from that of Eurasia or Africa, with dozens of language families restricted to small territories, compared to the vast swaths of territory in Eurasia and Africa, inhabited by people who speak closely related tongues in the Indo-European, Austronesian, Sino-Tibetan, and Bantu language families each of which reflects a history of mass migrations and population replacements. The first American expansion seems to have been so fast that the languages of the continent are related by a rake-like structure, with many tines extending in parallel to a common route that dates close to the time of the early settlement of the Americas. 
so both the genetic and linguistic evidence support a scenario in which many of the present-day Native American populations are direct descendants of populations that plausibly lived in the same region, shortly after the first peopling of the continent. This suggests that after the initial dispersal, population replacement was more infrequent in the Americas than it was in Africa and Eurasia. While the genetic data provided a large measure of confirmation for Greenberg's broad picture, he missed something important. Although Eskimo Aleut and Nandini speakers are genetically distinguishable from other Native Americans because they carry ancestry from distinct streams of migration from Asia, both have large amounts of first American ancestry, around a 60% mixture proportion in the case of the Eskimo Aleut speakers we studied, and around a 90% proportion in the case of some Nandini speakers. So while Greenberg's three predicted language groups correlate well with three ancient populations, First Americans have made a dominant demographic contribution to all present-day indigenous peoples in the Americas. Population Y The next card dealt from the genetic deck was a complete surprise, at least to us geneticists. Some physical anthropologists studying the shapes of human skeletons had for years been asserting that there are some American skeletons, dating to before 10,000 years ago, that do not look like what one would expect for the ancestors of today's Native Americans. The most iconic is Luzia, an approximately 11,500-year-old skeleton whose remains were found in Lapa Vermeia, Brazil, in 1975. Many anthropologists find the shape of her face more similar to those of indigenous peoples from Australia and New Guinea than to those of ancient or modern peoples of East Asia or Native Americans. This puzzle led to speculation that Luzia came from a group that preceded Native Americans. Anthropologist Walter Neves has identified dozens of Mesoamerican and South American skeletons with what he calls a Paleo-American morphology. Exhibit number one for Neves is a set of 55 skulls, dating to 10,000 years ago or more, from a prehistoric garbage dump at Lagoa Santa in Brazil. These claims are controversial. Morphological traits vary depending on diet and environment, and after the arrival of humans in the Americas, natural selection as well as random changes that accumulate in populations over time may have contributed to morphological change. The experience of Kennewick Man, whose skeleton has morphological affinities to those of Pacific Rim populations, but genetically is derived entirely from the same ancestral population as other Native Americans, serves as a great warning, an object lesson about the danger of interpreting morphology as strong evidence of population relationships. Many have criticized Neves by suggesting that his analyses were statistically flawed, in that he chose which sites to include in his analysis in order to strengthen his Paleo-American idea, and deliberately left out those that did not fit, an approach inconsistent with rigorous science. Nonetheless, Pontus Skoglin decided to inspect Native American genetic data more closely, looking for traces of ancestry different from the first Americans. His logic went as follows. If there were ancient people on the continent who were displaced by first Americans, they may have mixed with the ancestors of present-day populations, 
leaving some statistical signal in the genomes of people living today. Scoglin undertook a four-population test to compare all possible pairs of populations from the Americas that we had previously thought were entirely of first American ancestry to all possible pairs of populations outside the Americas, among them indigenous people from Australasia, including Andaman Islanders, New Guineans, and Australians, and other populations hypothesized by some anthropologists to be related to Paleo-Americans. He found two Native American populations, both from the Amazon region of Brazil, that are more closely related to Australasians than to other world populations. After joining my laboratory as a postdoctoral scientist, Scoglin found weaker signals of genetic affinity to Australasians, but still probably real, in other Native American populations ringing the Amazon basin. He estimated that the proportion of ancient ancestry in these populations was small, 1 to 6 percent, with the rest being consistent with first American ancestry. Scoglin and I were initially skeptical about these findings, but the statistical evidence just kept getting stronger. We saw the same patterns in multiple independently collected datasets. We also showed that these patterns could not arise as a result of recent migrations from Asian populations. While Amazonians had their strongest affinity to indigenous people from Australia, New Guinea, and the Andaman Islands, compared to East Asians as a baseline, they were not particularly close to any of them. Also contradicted by the genetic data was a Polynesian migration from the Pacific across to the Americas. While such a migration could have reasonably occurred over the past couple of thousand years, as Polynesians mastered the technology of transoceanic travel, the affinities we found had nothing in common with Polynesians. It really looked like evidence of a migration into the Americas of an ancient population more closely related to Australians, New Guineans, and Andamanese than to present-day Siberians. We concluded that we had found evidence of a ghost population, a population that no longer exists in unmixed form. We called this Population Y, after the word Ipiquera, meaning ancestor in Tupi, the language family of the populations with the largest proportions of this ancestry. The Tupi-speaking population in which we found the most population Y ancestry was the Shuryui, the authors of the origin myth that begins this chapter. They now number about 1,400 people and live in the Brazilian state of Rodonia. They have been relatively isolated, establishing formal relations with the government of Brazil only in the 1960s when road builders came through their territory. Since then, the Shuryui have defended their land from deforestation taken over coffee plantations, and reported illegal loggers and miners. They have sought representation from indigenous rights groups in the United States and claimed carbon credits for the greenhouse gases conserved through the rainforest they have protected. Another group belonging to the Tupi language family in which we found population Y ancestry is the Karatiana. The Karatiana are discussed at the beginning of this chapter as one of the first Native American tribes to become active in protesting against genetic research, in their case because of concern that DNA samples have been taken from them in 1996 with a promise of improved access to health care that has never been realized. The Karatiana are around 300 strong, 
and also come from Rondonia. The samples we analyzed were not part of this tainted 1996 sampling, but instead from a 1987 sampling, in which informed consent procedures consistent with the ethical standards of the time appear to have been followed. I hope that the Karatiana individuals who encounter our findings will welcome these observations about their distinctive ancestry as a positive discovery that highlights benefits that can come from engaging in scientific studies. The third population in which we found substantial population Y ancestry is the Shabante, who speak a language of the Gi group, which is different from the two P language groups spoken by the Shuryui and Karatiana. They number around 18,000 people and are located in Brazil's Mato Grosso state on the Brazilian plateau. They have been forcibly relocated. Their land today suffers from environmental degradation and their indigenous way of life is constantly under threat from development. We found little or no population Y ancestry in Mesoamerica or in South Americans to the west of the High Andes. We also did not detect population Y ancestry in the almost 13,000-year-old genome of the Clovis culture infant from the northern United States, or in present-day Algonquin speakers from Canada. The population-wide geographic distribution is largely limited to Amazonia, providing yet more evidence for an ancient origin. The fact that population Y ancestry is restricted to difficult terrain, far from the bearing link to Asia, is perhaps what one would expect from an original pioneering population that was once more broadly distributed and was then marginalized by the expansion of other groups. This pattern mirrors the distribution of some other language families, for example, the Du, Ha, and Khoi Kwadi languages spoken by the Khoi and San in southern Africa, where islands of these speakers in rugged terrain are surrounded by seas of people speaking other languages. The fact that the strongest statistical evidence of the ancient lineage we detect is in Brazil, the home of Lucia, and the Lagoa Santa skeletons, is remarkable, but does not prove that the ancient lineage we discovered coincides with the Paleo-American morphology hypothesized by Neves and others. Neves claimed to see the Paleo-American morphology not only in ancient Brazilians, but also in ancient and relatively recent Mexicans, and yet we found no hint of a signal in Mexicans. In addition, Eska Villaslev's group obtained DNA from two Native American groups that had skeletal morphology, typical of Paleo-Americans, according to Neves, Pericues in the Baja California Peninsula of northwestern Mexico, and Huajans in the southern tip of South America. Neither of these groups carried population-wide ancestry. What, then, does the genetic pattern mean? We already know from archaeology that humans probably arrived south of the ice sheets before the opening of the ice-free corridor, leaving remains at archaeological sites including Monteverde and the Paisley Caves. But the big population explosion, marked by the Clovis people, only occurred once the ice-free corridor had opened. The genetic data could be giving evidence of early peopling of the Americas by a minimum of two very different groups moving in from Asia, perhaps along two different routes and at different times. If population Y spread through parts of South America, before the first Americans, then it seems likely that after this initial peopling, 
the first Americans advanced into nearly all of the territories the population Y people had already visited, replacing them either completely or only partially, as in Amazonia. Population Y ancestry may have survived better in Amazonia than it did elsewhere because of the relative impenetrability of the Amazonian environment. This could have slowed down the movement of First Americans into the region, enough to allow people living there to mix with the new migrants rather than simply being replaced. The Australasian-related ancestry in the Shuruwe today amounts to a small percentage, about the same as the Neanderthal ancestry in all non-Africans. But it would be unwise to dismiss its importance. This is because the impact of population Y on Amazonians may be much greater than 2%. The ancestors of population Y had to traverse enormous spaces in Siberia and northern North America, where the ancestors of First Americans were also living. It is likely that population Y was already mixed with large amounts of First American-related ancestry when it started expanding into South America. If so, then the ancestry derived from a lineage related to Southern Asians is only a kind of tracer dye for population Y ancestry. Like the heavy metals injected into patients' veins in hospitals to track the paths of their blood vessels in a CT scan. Our estimate of around 2% population Y ancestry in the Shuruwe is based on the assumption that population Y traversed the entirety of Northeast Asia and America without mixing with other people it encountered. If we allow for the likelihood that there was mixture with populations related to First Americans on the way, the proportion of population Y in the Shuruwe could be as high as 85% and still produce the observed statistical evidence of relatedness to Australasians. If the true proportion is even a fraction of this, then the story of First Americans expanding into virgin territory is profoundly misleading. Instead, we need to think in terms of an expansion of a highly substructured founding population of the Americas. The history and timing of the arrival of Population Y in the Americas is likely to be resolved only with recovery of ancient DNA from skeletons with Population Y ancestry. After the First Americans The great promise of genetic data lies not only in what they can tell us about the deepest origins of Native Americans, but also in what genetic data has to say about more recent times and how populations got to be the way they are today. A prime example is insight into the origin of speakers of Nadini languages who live along the Pacific coast of North America, in parts of northern Canada, and as far south as Arizona in the United States. The overwhelming consensus among linguists is that these languages stem from an ancestral language no more than a few thousand years old, and that their dispersal over this vast range in northwestern America must have been derived at least in part by migrations. In an astounding development in 2008, the American linguist Edward Vida documented a deeper connection between Nadini languages and a language family of central Siberia called Yenisean, once spoken by many populations, though today only the Ket language of the Yenisean family is still used on a day-to-day basis. These results suggest that despite the enormous distance, a relatively recent migration from Asia gave rise to Nadini speakers in the Americas. What new information does genetics add? 
Our 2012 study found that the Nadini-speaking Chippewayan carry a type of ancestry not shared with many other Native Americans, providing evidence for the later Asian migration theory. We estimated that this ancestry constituted only around 10% of Chippewayan ancestry, but it was striking all the same. We wondered whether we could use this distinctive strain of ancestry in the Chippewayans as a tracer dye to document an ancestral link between Nadini speakers, like Chippewayans, and individuals from past archaeological cultures who could be studied with ancient DNA. In 2010, Eska Villerslev and colleagues published genome-wide data from an approximately 4,000-year-old lock of hair taken from a frozen individual of the Sakak culture, the first human culture of Greenland. Their analysis showed that this man belonged to a population that had a distinct blend of ancestry, compared both to first Americans in the South and the Eskimo Lutz who followed them in the Arctic. Villerslev's group expanded its claim in 2014 when it reported data from several additional Paleo-Eskimos, as people who preceded Eskimo Lutz are called by archaeologists. All these individuals were broadly related, and the authors argued that they represented a distinct migration from Asia that was different from all prior and subsequent ones. They argued that the Paleo-Eskimos largely went extinct without leaving descendants after the arrival of Eskimo lute speakers around 1,500 years ago. In our 2012 study, we tested the idea that the Paleo-Eskimos exemplified by the Sakak individual were descended from a distinct migration to the Americas. To our surprise, we found no statistical evidence for a distinct migration. Instead, our tests were consistent with the possibility that the Sakak derived their ancestry from the same source that contributed to the Nadini-speaking Chippewayans, just in different proportions. Since we know from genetic data that only around 10% of the ancestry of many Nadini speakers today is from this late Asian migration, it is easy to understand why the clustering analysis used by Villerslav's team missed the connection to Nadini speakers. We propose that the Nadini and Sakak might both derive part of their ancestry from the same ancient migration from Asia to the Americas. In 2017, Pavel Flegontov, Stephen Schiffels, and I confirmed that the Paleo-Eskimo lineage did not die out and instead lives on in the Nadini. By examining rare mutations that reflect recent sharing between diverse Native American and Siberian populations, we found evidence for recent common ancestors between the ancient Sakak individual and present-day Nadini. In fact, the hypothesis that Paleo-Eskimo lineages went extinct after the arrival of Eskimo Aleut speakers is even more profoundly wrong than I had originally suggested in my 2012 paper. The correct way to view the ancestry of present-day speakers of Eskimo Aleut languages is as a mixture of lineages related to Paleo-Eskimos and First Americans. In other words, far from being extinct, the population that included Paleo-Eskimos lives on in mixed form, not just in Nadini speakers, but also in Eskimo Aleut speakers. Our 2017 work also revealed an entirely new and unifying way to view the deep ancestry of the peoples of the Americas. In this new vision, there were just two ancestral lineages that contributed all Native American ancestry, apart from that in population Y. The first Americans, 
and the population that brought new small stone tools and the first archery equipment to the Americas around 5,000 years ago and founded the Paleo-Eskimos. We could show this because, mathematically, we can fit a model to the data in which all Native Americans, excluding Amazonians with their population Y ancestry, can be described as mixtures of two ancestral populations related differentially to Asians. Mixtures of these two ancestral populations produced the three source populations that migrated from Asia to America and that are associated with Eskimo Aleut languages, Nadini, and all other languages. A second genetic revelation about Native American population history is clearest in the Chukchi, a population of far northeastern Siberia that speaks a language unrelated to any spoken in the Americas. My analyses reveal that the Chukchi harbor around 40% first American ancestry, due to backflow from America to Asia. For those who are dubious about the idea that descendants of first Americans could have re-expanded out of America and then made a substantial demographic impact on Asia, who are used to thinking about the migratory path between Asia and America as a one-way street, it might be tempting to argue that the genetic affinity of the Chukchi to Native Americans simply reflects that they are the closest cousins of the first Americans in Asia. This bias also impeded my own thinking for more than a year, as I tried to make sense of the data we had from diverse Native Americans. But the genetic data clarify that the affinity is due to back migration, as the Chukchi are more closely related to some populations of entirely first American ancestry than to others, a finding that can only be explained if a sublineage of first Americans that originated well after the initial diversification of first American lineages in North America migrated back to Asia. The explanation for this observation is that the Eskimo Aleut speakers, who established themselves in North America, mixed heavily with local Native Americans, who contributed about half their ancestry, and then took their successful way of life back through the Arctic with them to Siberia, contributing not only to the Chukchi, but also to local speakers of Eskimo Aleut languages. The identification of a reflux of first American ancestry into Asia a type of finding that is difficult to prove with archaeology, is the kind of surprise that genetics is in a unique position to deliver. A third example of what genetics can offer is the story of the arrival of agriculture to the U.S. southwest from northern Mexico. Today, these regions are linked by a widespread language family called Uto-Aztecan, which linguists have traditionally viewed as having spread from north to south based on the fact that most of the languages in this group and some plant names that are shared across the languages are typical of the northern end of the present-day Udo-Aztecan distribution. However, others have argued that the languages radiated northward from Mexico following the spread of maize agriculture. It has been suggested, most forcefully by the archaeologist Peter Bellwood, that languages and peoples tend to move with the spread of agriculture. Studying the ancient DNA of people who lived before and after the arrival of maize in the region, along with comparison to the present-day inhabitants, can test this theory at least in part. We are beginning to find some clues in ancient DNA. Studies of ancient maize have now shown that this crop first entered the U.S. southwest by a highland route, inland, over hills, more than 4,000 years ago, and then was replaced by strains of maize of a lowland coastal origin around 2,000 years ago. 
This is a remarkable example of how plants, too, have had histories of migration and recurrent mixture. Although in the case of domesticated crops, the migrations and mixtures are, if anything, likely to be more dramatic because humans have subjected crops to artificial selection. It will only be a matter of time before we are able to test whether new peoples moved with the new crops. The dream, of course, is to carry out studies like these more systematically. Modern genetic studies and ancient DNA enable us to discover how Native American cultures are connected by links of migration and how the spread of languages and technologies corresponded to ancient population movements. Many of these stories have been lost because of the European exploitation that has decimated Native American populations and their culture. Genetics offers the opportunity to rediscover lost stories and has the potential to promote not just understanding, but also healing.